We invest in what we love and we maintain what is important to us. If you love your job, you will invest in it. If you love your car or your garden or a specific art collection, athletics, or exercise, you will invest and you will maintain it. If you love your friends, you're going to invest in them. If you love your family, your spouse, your children, you will make every effort. You'll put forth every effort to maintain those relationships. We invest in what we love and we maintain what is important to us. And what we love and find important really shapes our lives, doesn't it? It shapes our lives. And when we find others that invest, maintain, and love the same things, we find our people, right? We find our people. We find unity within a community, within that community, no matter their culture or their ethnicity or their socioeconomic status or their gifting or stage of life. When we find others that love the same things and find the same things important, we commit to them. We love them. We fight for them. We make time for them. We give ourselves to them. We invest in them. We maintain relationship with them. We walk with them and we pursue them. We find unity with them and we grow alongside them. We invest in what we love and we maintain what is important to us. And this morning, God's word is going to challenge us on how we understand community, unity, and maturity in the life of the church, more specifically in the life of our church. Today, we're gonna be continuing through our summer series through the letter to the Ephesians. And thus far, in chapters one through three of this letter, this letter that Paul the Apostle wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has been telling us who the church is in Christ. Who the church is. And we, we read in chapter one that the church is made up of those who are blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, united, saved, and sealed in Christ by the Spirit. Second, Paul has told us how the church has been saved and made one new humanity. We read in chapter 2 that the church, made up of Christians globally and locally, are saved by grace, through faith, by Christ alone, in Christ alone. And no matter what, their ethnicity, whether Jew, Gentile, Israel, non-Israel, culture, gender, socioeconomic status, age, stage, or gifting— the church is one people, one citizenship, and one dwelling place of God. Third, Paul has told us what the church reveals. We read in chapter 3, the church reveals the mystery and the beauty of the gospel. That truth that all who repent and believe, even Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish kingdom, us, have now been made co-heirs and partakers in all the covenants and promises of God. And all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. This is what Paul writes in another letter to the church in Corinth. And when 
when Paul says all, he means all. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. And ultimately, we read in chapter 3 that it's the church that reveals the manifold wisdom of God before heaven and earth. Paul has told us these things about the church thus far, and now we arrive at our passage this morning, chapter 4. If you haven't turned there already, Ephesians chapter 4. Please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under a seat near you. You'll find Ephesians on page 917. We're going to be walking through the first 16 verses, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. You'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage I'm going to read it for us, and then we're going to work through it. This is the best part of the sermon right here. This is the best part. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work through this passage. Father, we ask that you would speak to us from heaven through your word. Lord, your word is living and active, and we ask that it would be living and active among us this morning. Open the eyes of our hearts. Renew our minds. Open our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus. May we not just be informed by the knowledge of your word this morning, but may we be transformed by it in the renewing of our mind and conformity to the image of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we ask, I ask that you would strengthen your weak servant now to proclaim your word faithfully. We will give you all the praise and glory for what you do in and through your word. And it's in the name of Christ that we all pray, amen. Amen. Well, to guide our time this morning, Here's something for you to write down in your notes. Here's the main idea and the outline for our passage for Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. It's up there on the screen. Walk in a worthy manner. It's the main point. Walk in a worthy manner. 
And our outline is walk in a worthy manner in unity and in maturity. In unity and in maturity. Let's dive in. Point one, walk in a worthy manner in unity. Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 1, as we just read, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Reusing his title from back in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul calls himself a prisoner. And Paul was most likely imprisoned when he wrote this letter under Roman rule. And so ironically, though Paul was an earthly prisoner under Nero, he is making it abundantly clear that he is no one's prisoner but Christ's. And so he writes, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And in the same line, he writes the word, therefore. And anytime we see the word, therefore, brothers and sisters, we should ask, what's it there for? Church, this is a transition moment in the letter. At the close of chapter 3, Paul prayed for the church, the global church, the local church of Ephesus, and the local church of Edgewood, EBC. And he prayed that the church would be filled with the strength of the Spirit, the presence of Christ, and the power and the fullness of God. And that prayer is like a hinge, a hinge and door that opens into the second half of his letter to Ephesus and to our church. This prayer, he is documented back in Ephesians 3. He documented what it was to be filled with God and filled with the presence of Christ and how that ought to inform our lives as we live together as the church in light of our calling as the church. And in our passage today, Paul moves us from doctrine to duty. He moves us from indicative to imperative. He moves us from knowledge to practice. And he says, therefore, in light of your calling, in light of all I've written about who the church is in chapters one through three, he says, second half of verse one, I urge you to walk in a worthy manner. Brothers and sisters, what does it look like to walk this way? What does it look like to walk in a worthy manner? I'm so glad you asked. Verse two. We are to walk with all humility and gentleness. We are to walk with patience. And we are to walk with one another, bearing with one another in love. First, we are to walk with all humility and gentleness. It has been said that humility is not thinking more of ourselves or thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. A life of humility is lived with an others-centered focus. And Christian humility is always paired, always partnered with gentleness. And gentleness or meekness is not weakness, but it is strength under control. Meekness is strength under control. Paul often speaks of humility and gentleness together. And when he does, we should immediately think of who we should think of the model of humility and gentleness, and that is Jesus himself, the one who said that his heart is gentle and lowly, the one who set aside a robe of splendor and put on a robe of frail humanity, the one who came not to be served, but to what? Serve and lay his life down for many. 
to walk with all humility and gentleness is to walk with and like Jesus. And our goal is to become more like him. Amen? Our goal is to become more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit and the Word. And so if you struggle with pride and the lack of gentleness, if you find it difficult to apologize or admit when you're wrong, if you find it difficult to prefer others, if you're quick to speak harshly, foolishly, quickly, then pursue and walk in humility with the Lord's help. We are to walk with all humility and gentleness, church. We are also to walk with patience. Patience is so much more than a state of mind or a state of heart. Patience is really a posture. It's a posture. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. A fruit of the Spirit is patience and ought to characterize the life of a Christian. It's a fruit that displays a holy contentedness in Christ. And it is a fruit that displays a holy ease in the midst of crisis. And it is a fruit that is patient. The fruit of patience is shown in our love toward others. Holy, patient love toward others. And where there is patience, the Spirit is at work. And so if you find yourself impatient in speech or action, pursue patience with the Lord's help. We are to walk in a worthy manner with all humility and gentleness, with patience. And third, we are to walk with one another, bearing with one another in love. To bear with one another in love is to have a loving tolerance toward others, recognizing differences among us as strengths. Now, we should be careful here. should be really careful. Loving tolerance is not excusing sin nor celebrating sin. But bearing with another person, another sinner, that is different than you. To bear with one another is to live in light of the gospel, that gospel that has torn down all walls of hostility, as we read in chapter 2. To bear with one another in love is to live with a non-hostile posture and a non-hostile understanding way with your brother or sister in the church. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes to husbands and presses them, pushes them to live with their wives in an understanding way. But this understanding principle is really applied to the whole church. We are to live with one another in an understanding way, showing love to one another, no matter our differences. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love is displayed when we show loving tolerance toward one another. And so if you find yourself easily irritated, if you find yourself rubbed the wrong way often, by people in the church. If you find it a little easier just to walk away when the relational going gets tough, then pursue bearing with others with the Lord's help. Beloved, in a dark and cold and broken world, these things, these marks, bring light and warmth and healing, and ultimately they bring unity. 
Humility, patience, and loving tolerance are the building blocks of relational unity in the church. And this is what Paul is concerned with here ultimately. And so he says, we are to walk in a worthy manner, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What we love and find important, we actively and eagerly maintain. Uh, Unity and peace in the church must be maintained or it will be lost. And we see pictures of relational unity all over the Word, all over Scripture. The Trinity is a picture of unity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Abraham and Lot are a picture of unity. Moses and Aaron, David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi, Mary and Martha, Jesus and his disciples, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy. Even the church of Ephesus is a picture of unity in the midst of diversity and differences. And there's no shortage of examples throughout Scripture that display unity. And for Paul, unity is not optional. It is necessary and must be maintained. Unity is not optional. It is necessary and must be maintained. And where there is humility, patience, and loving tolerance, there is Christian unity in the church. And the Spirit of God is actively at work forming and reforming the church with a spirit of unity and the bond of peace. But there's more. There's more here. Paul celebrates the ground of our unity, and that is sound doctrine in verses 4 through 6. Many biblical scholars believe that this is a historical early church creed or a confession or a a hymn regularly sung and recited by the church. We could think of this as kind of like our statement of faith here at EBC. And in these verses, the spirit of the hand of Paul offers seven interconnected unities, unity statements that make up the ground the doctrinal sidewalk that we walk in a worthy manner along together. EBC, we find our unity just as the church of Ephesus did in being one body. We are one body, the body of Christ, locally covenanted together. One spirit. We have one spirit, the Holy Spirit, that is at work among us and unifies us. We have one hope. One common hope, Christ himself, which is the hope of God embodied. That is Jesus. We have one Lord. We confess, worship, and proclaim as we are gathered together or scattered throughout the region that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have one faith. Just as we are one body, we have one body of truth found in this book, in the word, with the gospel at the center. The gospel is the hub of our unity together, EBC. We have one baptism. We who have been regenerated and repented and believed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation have been given new life by grace and have been baptized into Christ spiritually. We have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God himself is the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between of our unity together in the life as a church, in our life as a church. These seven unities form the doctrinal ground of our unity together. And these seven are really crystallized in our statement of faith. 
when we hold fast to these, our unity is indestructible, stronger than steel, greater than the universe. But you may be thinking, that's all well and good, Chris. That's all, that's all well and good. What do we do with division? What do we do with division in the church globally? What do we do with division in the church locally? What do we do when things seem to be more divided than ever? All of us siloed. What do we do with disunity in the life of the church? We keep what is primary, primary. We keep the gospel at the center and we don't let second or third level doctrinal issues divide us. We don't let differences of politics or preference or differences of perspective on decisions made in the life of the church break us and form a chasm between us. We pursue and maintain unity with one another. And if Christ is in us, unity must be among us. If Christ is in us, unity must be, must be among us. Brothers and sisters, we must pursue walking together in a worthy manner in unity. We must walk together upon these seven unity statements in a humble, gentle, patient, and peacemaking way, keeping Christ and his gospel at the very center. And in the life of our church, we cannot do this and we cannot pursue this enough There is a reason that Christ prayed as we looked in the equipping class today in John 17, may they be one, even as I am one with you, Father. This is Christ's prayer for his disciples. It's his prayer for his disciples, the church. This is Christ's prayer. May it be ours as well. And so if you're sitting here today and you're not walking in unity with another person in the church or another family in the church over any difference, over a secondary or third level doctrinal issue or a difference of politics or preferences or perspective on decisions made in the life of the church. Don't wait. Repent and pursue unity. Maintain unity today. Find a space to talk. Read this passage over again and pray with one another. Read this passage together and pray with one another. Pursue peace and maintain unity. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. A sure sign that you are indeed a child of God is if you are present and walking in peace and unity with those in the church So whatever your role is here in this church, when you see the fires of disunity growing, wherever, wherever they come, quench them with the water of unity. Extinguish them. And when you hear words of disunity, gently correct them with humility and gentleness. We should all take stock. So let's remain and pursue and maintain unity together with the Lord's help. God does not take unity lightly. He doesn't take unity lightly, as we've seen in this passage and abundance of others in Scripture. So we shouldn't either. Yesterday, today, or all the tomorrows until Christ returns. 
To bring it all together, beloved, we are to eagerly walk in a worthy manner in unity and grow in maturity and in maturity. This brings us to point two, walk in a worthy manner in maturity. Let's read verses 7 through 16 once again. Verses 7 through 16 of chapter 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill us or fill all things. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In this passage, we see that the unity of the church and maturity of the church is tightly linked. So often where there is Christian unity, there is also Christian maturity. Where there is maturity, there is unity. And verses 7 through 10 may seem out of place to you. Did that, that feel a little jolting to you? Slightly out of place? Like, what's going on here? It's essential, though. These verses are essential to understand, understanding what Paul is doing here in his argument, in the flow of the text. For there is an important Old Testament connection made here that connects the whole passage. In verse 8, Paul quotes the psalm that we read earlier, or part of it that we read earlier, Psalm 68. And that psalm is glorifying God's victory, salvation, and power displayed in Moses' ministry to the Lord's people in leading them out of Egypt through the wilderness. It was God who led his people out of Egypt through the wilderness by the hand of Moses. Moses was his means. And, that he, and what, what event sits at the center of Moses' ministry? What event sits at the center of it? Sinai. Sinai sits at the center of Moses' ministry. And in that event, we see that Moses ascends a mountain to receive what? A gift from God. He receives the law. And then he goes back down, he descends the mountain, and what does he do? He bestows it upon the people. He gives it to the people. And we need to see that Paul picks up that ascension and descension ministry of Christ here in the ascension and descension ministry of Moses in Psalm 68. He's reading the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens. In short, here's what Paul is saying to individuals in the church and the church collectively about who Jesus is. Here we go, just briefly. The same Jesus who has ascended in victory over sin and death, has taken those captive, is the same Jesus that descended 
referring to his birth, his life, his death and resurrection in order to fill and rule over all things. And in light of this, Jesus has given grace or graces, which is the same word here in the Greek for gift to the church. It's not referring to saving grace. He's referring to graces, gifts given to the church here in this, in this passage. This means that everyone in this room, everyone in this room who is a member of EBC, who has covenanted and committed to this body, has been given a gift. They have been given a gift to help grow this church in unity and in maturity. So the plain of day questions are these. What are the gifts that Christ has given you? How are you using them in and for the church? What are the gifts Christ has given you? How are you using them in and for the church? Beloved, all of us have been given gifts by Christ and all of us have a part to play, a special role to perform in the life of the church. And the church is hurt if we withhold our ministry and gift from the church, if we lock it up. The church is harmed when we withhold serving in quiet behind the scenes ways like nursery or even children's church or upfront leadership ways. It has been often said that uh, the church can be like a soccer match. 22,000 spectators desperately in need of exercise and 22 players desperately in need of rest. This church has been given a diversity of gifts by Christ himself as we just read in this passage. So how are you using those gifts to grow the unity and maturity of this church. And Paul, it's pretty cool here that Paul doesn't just kind of tell us that there are gifts. He actually shows us four gifts here, which are themselves a picture of unity in the midst of diversity. He says, verses 11 through 12, and he, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You'll notice five roles there, and I mentioned four. That's intentional. We'll get there in a moment. In the first century, God gave the church apostles and prophets, and they were the foundation with Christ at the cornerstone. We read of this back in chapter 2. And upon that foundation, the Lord has built his church and has given it evangelists, those with a special gift to proclaim the gospel to those around them, those who have been given by God a unique ministry in the church of yesterday and today to evangelize the lost. Now, we should be careful here. We are all given. We are all given this ministry to a degree. To be a Christian is to be an evangelist. There's no such thing as a private Christian. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. We were saved to proclaim the message by which we were saved. This, this is the church's work. We're all evangelists, just as we're all theologians to a degree. But there are those in the church who are uniquely gifted to fulfill that ministry. The Lord has given the church the gift of evangelists. He's also given the church shepherds and teachers. And this isn't two distinct roles. This is one distinct role. In the New Testament, they're called elders, 
shepherds. We call them here in our church pastors. The Lord has given the church the gift of pastors, those set aside for the work of ministry, specifically a ministry of word and prayer, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip the church. Pastoral care and equipping the church are intimately linked here in the text. So make no mistake, the work of the church is not dependent upon one man or a group of men, but it takes the whole church to do the work of the church. And pastors are given to the church to equip her. I've heard it said, I don't need a pastor or leader to guide me. All I need is the spirit in the Bible. But this is an immature statement that misunderstands God, the gifts he has given his people, and the work of ministry. Pastors have been given to the church to equip the church so that the church can fulfill the work of ministry and therefore build itself up. We all have a part to play in this. This is why we have a plurality of elders here, a plurality of pastors who equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is why we have a first hour class happening at 9.15 on Sunday mornings over in the chapel called Equipping Classes under the heading Equipping for Life. Those classes are intentionally set in place to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is why we preach God's word here at EBC every week to develop and equip leaders and build up and equip the church. This is why we have a pastoral assistant position in this church to lead and develop and equip men to do the work of ministry, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And if you don't know your part to play in the church, if, you're, if you don't know, if you're concerned about what this looks like, then schedule a meeting with one of the pastors. We would love to talk with you about this, about what it looks like to grow in the life of the church and utilize that gift, those gifts that you've been given. Which begs the question, how, how does the church truly grow? How does it grow? Not just numerically. I'm not talking about some sort of numerical church growth plan here or a program. How does the church grow according to God's word? Not numerically, but spiritually in maturity. Well, we grow as we pursue unity together. That's what we saw in verses one through six. As we utilize and cherish the gifts that we've been given, as we saw in verses seven through 12. And as we help one another grow in maturity. And this is what we see in verses 13 through 16. And this helping one another grow and mature is what we call discipleship. Discipleship, walking with Christ and walking with others in the context of a local church. And here it is helpful to remember the context of Ephesus, the context into which this letter is written. In that time and place, the temple of Artemis sat at the center of the city. The city found its unity and its purpose from that temple and from that goddess. And the city was either perpetually discipled by her priests or Roman leaders or titans of commerce in that day. And really, in our context, not much has changed. Not much has changed. Our culture operates very similarly. Sure, the gods or goddesses have changed. The disciplers have changed. The context is different, but the pull to find our discipleship and community outside of Christ, oh, that's, that's still an issue. That's still an issue. 
And it's even more an issue that we typically do this outside the context of a local church. Attempt to do it anyway, as rogue Christians, like that exists. So Paul is calling the church here to walk in a manner worthy with a better unity, a better allegiance, with better equipping and discipleship that leads to better growth and maturity. And here in verses 13 through 16, Paul gives us the four marks of a mature Christian. Four marks of mature Christians walking in a worthy manner and are worth imitating. Here they are. These are the marks that characterize a disciple of Christ and one who disciples others in Christ and helps them walk with Christ and grow in maturity. Here it is. These four marks of a mature Christian and a mature church. Verse 13, they are Christ-like. Verse 14, they doctrinally, they're doctrinally secure. Third, they speak the truth in love. Fourth, they build up the body. First, they are Christ-like. The goal of the Christian life, as mentioned earlier, is to become more like Jesus, to be more like Christ, to conform to his image. And this happens in the sanctifying process of walking with Jesus, sitting at his feet in humility and learning from him in the context of the church. And because Paul is writing here to local churches, we can't forget that, he is writing to local churches, he is making it abundantly clear that to be Christ-like and to grow in Christ-likeness, we need to be unified with the church in faith, the faith and its doctrine, and growing in the knowledge of Jesus, the Son of God, found here in this book. The Christian faith is not based upon feelings. Christian faith is not based upon feelings. It is based upon truth that we know, trust, and believe in mind and heart. And where there is unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus, there is a maturity that and fullness of Christ that dwells, and ultimately there is growth in Christ-likeness. A mature Christian and a mature church is Christ-like. Second, they are doctrinally stable. If I let my children roam in a candy store without rules or guidance or parameters, they will be tossed to and fro frantically by the winds of options before them. Unwise decisions will take place. Stomach aches will incur. But if I equip them and give them guidance and parameters, if I offer stable wisdom, they will, Lord willing, mature and not be swayed like children often are. You don't have to turn there, but you can write these down. In Psalm 1, Matthew 7, and Ephesians 4, we find a consistent element. And that is, the wind, the wind comes up in these three passages. The winds of the world, our culture, false teachers and false doctrine, the spirit of the age are always perpetually blowing upon us. And we read here in scripture that the wind blows the foolish like chaff in Psalm 1, that it destroys the house that is built on sand in Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 7. Or it tosses immature Christians to and fro by the winds of human cunning and deceitful schemes. Beloved, a mature Christian is biblically 
and doctrinally secure, standing upon the rock of Christ, his gospel and his word, and standing firm in sound doctrine. So turn off the televangelists. Don't go down the rabbit hole of false teachers on YouTube who claim to be biblical but are deceitful and scheming. Before you read a book by a Christian author, do your research and see if she or he is sound and secure in their doctrine. Turn to the word, inquire, ask a pastor who's been given to you to equip you about that said author or that station or, or that book or that preacher. Your doctrine and faith is at stake. The doctrinal unity of the church and the faith of the church is at stake. Your maturity and the church's maturity are at stake. A mature Christian is marked by Christ-likeness, doctrinal security, and third, they speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. When we present the truth of Scripture, of the gospel, of a moral ethical principle that we are applying to the world around us, inside or outside the church, we are to present it in love. The wording here in the Greek is is wonderful. Uh, The wording says you're to engage in truthing in love. We don't really have that word. What does it look like? What does truthing look like? Well, it looks like speaking and acting toward one another and those outside the church with compassion and love. The great Francis Schaeffer, I love Schaeffer, once said that orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Oh, truth without compassion, truth without love is ugly. It can be really ugly. Now notice that we also need to be careful here. Paul is not calling us to not speak the truth or to sacrifice truth on the altar of love. But he is saying that the mature Christian seeks to combine truth and love in a way that glorifies and exalts Christ and is whimsical and compelling to those inside and outside the church. So let's make no mistake, there is a direct correlation between our spiritual maturity and how we speak. And this ties back to Paul's words at the beginning of this chapter on humility, patience, and loving tolerance. We can know all the right things. We can believe all the right things and not own them. We could have the knowledge of something and not know what to do with it. We could be informed by the truth and not transformed by it. We can be informed by the truth, but how we speak the truth shows whether or not our hearts have been truly transformed. A mature Christian, a mature Christian in a mature church is marked by Christ-likeness, doctrinal security, they speak truth in love, and fourth, they built up the body. A mature Christian is committed to a local body in membership and is already always seeking to build up and encourage others in a world of constant tearing down and individualistic detachment. Expressive individualism. This is radical. These words are radical. And each other, the the members of this church, one another, 
We should be working to properly and with edification build up the church in love. You know, a church is much like a family and it's much like a system. A family is a system, a church is a system. When all the parts are working together, there is growth and there is progression. But when a part of that system breaks, ooh, the whole system is compromised. And so let us maintain and grow in maturity together, co-working together so that our whole body is built up in love. Let's work together at this. A mature Christian in a mature church is marked by Christ-likeness, doctrinal security, they speak the truth in love, and they build others up in love in the context of a local church. We should close. Paul is, is calling us to a task that is beyond us. We're not capable of doing any of this on our own. The task of maintaining unity and growing as a, as a church, growing in maturity, is weighty. Lord willing, you, you felt the weight, the weight of this. I, I felt the, and I continually feel the weight of these words given by God through the hand of Paul to the church. So here's the truth. As a church, we can only do the dues, the duty of the Christian life upon what's been done in Christ. We can only do the dues, the duty of the Christian life upon what has been done by and in Christ, in the gospel. From the doctrine of the gospel flows the duty of a gospel life. At the heart of the gospel is the finished work of Jesus. In the cross and resurrection of Jesus, he died for sinners like you and I. On the cross, he took the punishment that you deserved and I deserved. On the cross, he died as a substitute in our place. He took the punishment for your sin and my sin. But three days later, he got up from the dead in resurrection and he ascended to heaven where he currently reigns in power and glory. And he will one day return. And there's only one response to this good news. It's repentance, turning away from sin that leads to spiritual death and things that wrongly divide us. And faith, turning toward Christ by grace, through faith, daily walking in that faith, maintaining unity and growth and maturity in the life of the church. We are saved by Christ alone and can only do this faithfully work together and faithfully walk together in Christ alone, by Christ alone. And all believers who believe in this gospel, this finished work of Christ, all believers hold the promise of eternal life in heaven with Christ and his church, his bride, forevermore. This is the gospel. This is the message that we never get over. This is the message that unifies us and matures us. And if you have questions about Jesus and this gospel and what it means for unity and maturity in the church, ask someone around you. Or I'll be standing in the back after service. I would love to talk with you about salvation and the church and unity and maturity. Nothing, there's nothing more I'd rather do then talk about those things with you. So let's continue as a church 
tying it here directly to our church, we need to remember that it's in the gospel that we find the ground of our unity. And it is the gospel that brings growth and maturity in our life. We invest in what we love and we maintain what is important to us. So let's live in the gospel together. We can only live out the gospel if we're living in the gospel. Let's live in the gospel and out the gospel together, investing in one another, eagerly maintaining unity, eagerly pursuing and maintaining unity and maturity by God's abundant grace. Let's pray. Father, your word is breathed out by you and is profitable and is instructive for faith and for practice. And Lord, we do ask that we would walk in the light of it, that we would be bound together by the truth of that gospel that we just heard, that we would strive to maintain unity and to grow in maturity, not only as individual Christians, but as a church body here in Edgewood, a body that displays your manifold wisdom before the heavenly realms and displays your manifold wisdom to the surrounding community. May we be a vessel of your light and your love and your life. A vessel that is unified and growing together for our good and your glory. And it's in the name of the Son that we pray. Amen. Amen.